0: Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie making process. Hosted by Ray Finkel. Laces out, Dan. Let's dim the lights and kick off the show. Uh, Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by The Super E, dry goods for the sophisticated adventurer at The Super E. Welcome, everyone, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers, uh, I do a lot of writing, screenwriting, especially lately, a lot of uh, short films and feeling like I'm in a good rhythm for uh, a feature, a new feature that I'm working on, and all the other things.
1: But that's enough about that, we use it all to do the show. Todd, what are
0: we doing today?
1: <laughs> right into it. <laughs> today we are covering Oppenheimer, just came out. If you haven't seen this, please pause this episode uh, I mean, if you know history, we won't ruin anything, but <laughs> right. uh, we are going to ruin some stuff. We're going to talk about some stuff. So we don't want to ruin it. So please go pause the episode, go watch some film, and then come back and take a listen.
0: Yeah, yeah. we'll look at a bunch of things. I'm surprised, I think, how wide this conversation is. You're not surprised just because you're smarter than me, but we'll, we'll <laughs> at a minimum, look at cinematography, color, black and white, fission versus fusion, Um, Some IMAX considerations from my perspective, uh, as well as look at some of the story and writing fast starts, the Trinity build up, the final scene, and as well as uh, some of the music and casting, what goes into that, how it impacts uh, the viewing of the film and other such stuff and things and stuff.
1: And a quick synopsis of this three-plus-hour film, Uh, but it's a good one. The story of American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb. It's directed by Christopher Nolan, screenplay by Christopher Nolan. It's based on the book by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. Cinematography by Hoyt Van Hoytema. It's featuring Killian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer, Emily Blunt as Kitty Oppenheimer, Robert Downey Jr. as Strauss, uh, Alden Ironwreck as uh, Senate aide, Kenneth Branagh as Niels Bohr, Florence Pugh as Gene Tatlock, Jefferson Hall as Chevalier, Matt Damon as General Groves, Benny Safdie as Edward Teller, and Gary Oldman as Harry Truman.
0: And for the first of two weeks in a row, no clip because it's all uh, very moody and just explosions in your ear and um, like good voiceover stuff. So, Todd, this is, by my estimation anyway, the third in a series of Nolan's apocalyptic films, right? Interstellar, Tenet, and now this, the bomb that goes off. I'm curious, how did you sit through this three-hour film? What impact did it have on you? Did you enjoy it? Yeah. What do you got, man?
1: It is... It's, I mean, it's breathtaking. The whole thing is, is amazing. I mean, I've said this before, um, uh, on the podcast, uh, like I, I don't want to stop complaining about a three hour movie. Just stop complaining about it. There are plenty of three hour movies that are considered masterpieces. I mean, Godfather, like just, just don't look at the length and go watch it for what it is and then make a decision of whether or not it's too long for you. That's that's all it is. Stop complaining. It's like that's the whole conversation around this film is that it's three hours long. It's three hours long and it drives me crazy. Just go watch it. Uh, OK, so the, with that out of the way, it didn't to me feel like three hours. I could have sat mm-hmm. for another three hours just to watch the performance and the way that this thing was shot. And OK, so the performances, the way that it was shot and the um and the music. Just completely envelop you into the into the not just the life of Oppenheimer but the 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 situation that was going on it would be one thing uh just to tell a biopic of of Oppenheimer but that's not what this really is like yes it's a biopic but at the same time it is a story of a situation that is one of the most important situations in human history and uh, and doesn't doesn't give you everything to know whether or not you should like Oppenheimer. That's the other thing. Mm. Like I felt like several times that, Oh, he's a bad guy, you know, in this film. And th- what were you going to say something? No. Okay. I And and then there were other th- And then the next thing that would happen, I'd, I'd think, Oh no, like he has to do this. And this is, it's important. And then, and then it would happen. Like he, the bomb would go off, went off, and he stands in front of everyone um, and uh, or after they drop it on Hiroshima and he's, he says that it's a win for the United States or whatever. And I'm thinking, what? What is he doing? Like he's conflicted and yet he's going along with this. Why is he doing that? Which bodes bad for him later on, you know, when he's sitting in front of the the, the hearing. But anyway, the music. This is a perfect example of why Nolan is is genius. He knows better than most, maybe he doesn't know better than most, but he does it better than most of utilizing music as, as a, a, an anchor for his story, Mm -hmm. not a something to, to push it forward or to, um, heighten a moment or whatever. It is literally the anchor. You change one thing about the music and it changes everything about the film. I, I mean, as a musician, I just adore that. I think that's That's so important in every, every film that I love. It's largely because of the music. And I mean, if you look at Interstellar, my favorite film, obviously it's, you know, the music is, (laughs) I mean, a good half of why I love that film, (laughs) if not more. Um, um, And he understands that and uses it throughout the entire film as that anchor. The sound, I mean, I saw it in IMAX on purpose. I drove 45 minutes (laughs) to stand in line for an hour. And yeah, it was not the best viewing experience just Mm. because of everything that had to go into it. Yet it was the only way I could see this film. The sound, whoever mixes films like this is is a downright amazing genius. I don't know how they get sounds so low, so loud. You know, because one of the things that is, I mean, it's just so difficult to get a low sound, which has a long wavelength, to be very loud and not distort your speakers. So, obviously, it's the array they're using. It's the setup and everything in the theater. I get that. But in order to mix that, you have to have that, you know, like that physical thing. So, unbelievable. Uh, I thought Killian Murphy's performance was otherworldly. There's no... If he doesn't at least be nominated for an Oscar, then I will shun the Oscars <laughs> right. forever. Yeah. Right? If not and, outright win it, right. Right. And then also I just adore the casting. You know, pulling in Robert Downey Jr., which everybody, I guarantee, just sees Iron Man when they see Robert Downey Jr. They just right. But he's so brilliant and such an amazing actor that he can overcome that no matter no matter what. And and have this performance that is just mind-boggling. I would say that that Killian Murphy and uh, Robert Downey Jr. should both win an Oscar. Yeah, for this.
0: Yeah, Robert Downey will get the uh, best supporting.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah,
0: it's a one-two right? punch, man. God, God, it's gotta
1: be. It's gotta be. <laughs> a cinematography editing. Editing is fantastic. I mean, these moments of him thinking, you know, like the way that you know they'll they'll show him thinking about quantum mechanics and then we see these these like loops and hear these sounds of like flutters that are supposed to make us think about electrons and and uh and the atomic world and they do and they do and it's beautiful and they have these these moments when he talks about outer space or like a black hole and we see this this flash of like what a black hole would look like it's it's not it we talk a lot about in this podcast of not dumbing down for the audience Mm. I think something like that, even if you understand what they're talking about, which I think that, I mean, to the extent that we can, we do, you and I, we understand the idea of a particle being a wave and, and a, a, a particle. And we understand what a black hole is. Um, we understand what the effects of it. We, you know, we kind of understand that just because we talk about it a lot and we love that kind of stuff. But still to get that, that to have those those moments of i'm going to see that thing that they're talking about you know or they're going to explain this one moment because they're explaining it to somebody else this this one idea because they're going to explain it to somebody else in the film like it doesn't feel too much like exposition in this film it feels like like it's going along with the necessity of of the conversation in the film but also it is it is to to keep people who don't talk about this kind of stuff um, in their everyday lives involved in the story you know because you can you can watch the story and there's a lot happening there's a lot of conversations happening they're dropping names about this this guy and that guy and whatever and it's hard to follow in fact in fact I think I need to watch it a second and third time to really okay I'm glad I'm not the only one (laughs) you're nodding your head yes Uh, to really make sure that I follow everything in that regard but I could meaning if Mm -hmm. I watch it a second time I could be like, oh yeah, that's the guy he's talking about, or oh yeah, now they're over here. Okay, that makes sense. I'm glad I watched this second time. But if I don't know anything about particle physics and hmm. and I watch a second, third, or fourth time, I will never get that unless it is at least somewhat explained in the highest possible, you know, format.
0: So that's Which a, was that, good enough for the first viewing. Like if exactly. I think everyone probably got lost with the names I did but you didn't get lost with the physics which is yes. freaking wild
1: right but that's important because <laughs> yeah. unless unless you get it unless it's explained to you a little bit the physics you'll never get it on a second third or fourth vi- viewing because you're mm-hmm. not going to go research that probably no. at least if you haven't researched it before or don't care about it you won't now yeah. you know so that's the kind of stuff that has to be somewhat handed to you and I did not feel like like talked down to mm. at all I, okay i'm glad you didn't either Anyway, so th- I'm just going to shut up now because I really want to hear what you think. Because to me, the performances are incredible. The, mm, the cinematography is exactly what I wanted for a movie like this. I felt like I was inside Oppenheimer's mind half the time. Just Killian Murphy standing there thinking is <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like uh, I mean, I don't know how to explain it. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. The conversation he has with Eisen, with um, Einstein that we don't hear until the very end, but we do get to hear it. You know, that was one of those things. I was like, please, I want to know what he said. I want to know what he said. And then we get to hear it. Right. It's it's just great. At the very end, it's great storytelling. The whole time, and I I found a um some old footage of uh, a description of the of the Trinity Project on on YouTube, and I'll. I'll share it with you We can put it in the show notes Please And it's literally The movie Like this guy From like the 1950s Is talking about Like the Trinity Project And describes it And we're seeing some footage Of this and that Whatever It's literally the movie Everybody laying down With their backs To the, the explosion And the only time They could see Is after the first flash And they had to cover their eyes And and it, like the, the rainstorm Delaying the explosion For a few hours Like all of that is real That like really happened just unbelievable. I also loved, lastly, and then I'll let you talk. I also loved uh, that the explosion was not the end of the movie. Hmm. The explosion was only a piece of the story, right? And so so we're watching this movie, waiting for the moment that it explodes. And I could hear a pin drop in an IMAX theater. It, it, it was... Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. It was like everyone was holding their breath, including me. And I was front and center right there, just like, you know, eyes wide waiting for this thing to happen. And uh, it was brilliant to have no sound for so long. And then this just loud bang. But that wasn't the loudest moment of the movie Mm -hmm. for me. The loudest moment of the movie for me was afterwards when he's walking in to, to this, this theater of stand this, these people right, and he's about to speak to them, and they're just stomping on the on the the the, um, the the bleachers. I mean, I felt my bones rattling, and I think that's the story. The story is not the explosion. The story is how he dealt with building the thing, and then after uh, it, it happened, and after he basically felt like he destroyed the world. Him dealing with the sound of everyone on top of him. And, and I got that. I, I mean, I was looking around thinking, does anybody else, is anybody else like blown away by how freaking loud this is and how intense this is? It was way more intense than the explosion. The explosion was like a boom. And then it subsided relatively quickly. This was just, wouldn't stop. It was just insane. It was just nonstop. And, and, and uh, told the entire film In that moment for me. So anyway, sorry, go ahead. Dude. Yeah. I mean, you just
0: dropped a thousand things on my face. Um, Sorry. And so, yeah, I think the performances, my God, I could not agree more. Killian Murphy completely disappears. um, And you really just see Oppenheimer uh, and doubly so for Robert Downey Jr. as Strauss. It's, it's pronounced Strauss. It's the Southern way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, I, little... did I pronounce it yeah, wrong or no, right? I, I was like, I'm just I, on I know him. it's not
1: Strauss, which is how it's kind of spelled. Yeah. We'd normally say it. Right.
0: Uh, but Strauss, I love that little clarification at the beginning whenever they're meeting each other. Strauss? Uh, Strauss. It's yeah. the Southern pronunciation. But he really does. I mean, I see the makeup. Sure, that helps. The wardrobe and costuming. Sure, that helps. But it's his performance. Like you could have had him dressed up as Iron Man for all I care and I still would have seen Strauss uh just because he's doing things with his face and with his mannerisms that are very not Robert Downey Jr they're very whoever this guy is and it was just astounding to watch him I mean everyone in here is is really fantastic I think there was only one actor that popped up I don't know who he is um and I was like oh you need to bring it back a, a few notches here, buddy. Um, he was just doing way too much like face acting. Um, and that was weird. Like maybe that was a really good lifelike imitation of whatever he was doing, but as a film, it's distracting. Uh, <laughs> um, when was this, this was, I don't remember this guy. He just pops up, I think twice in the film and he like is making this face. I think the first time is during the recruitment uh, phase, Mm-hmm. Um, and he meets him and he's, I don't know, he's making this weird face. Um, and okay. then again, later on, but otherwise i man, I was just in love with, with everyone. We'll come back to, you know, the casting stuff. Yeah. I watched it twice. First time in IMAX, proper IMAX format. I think there's this whole, you know, thing going around about what's true IMAX and what isn't uh, IMAX, I think is mostly about the resolution and the aspect ratio. It's not about whatever, whether it's film or laser that, that has nothing to do with, uh, a proper IMAX viewing. And so there, whatever there are, you know, 40, 50, I I don't know a lot. There's, there's a fair amount of IMAX films, uh, theaters, if you want to go see it in, you know, the, the right IMAX format, but I saw it twice first in IMAX, then in 35, um, and fairly different experiences. I think maybe the IMAX was too intense. Uh, (laughs) I walked out, my head was rattled for the rest of the day. And I mean, it was intense, maybe too intense. I don't know. But I think watching it the second time helped clarify a few things because it's it's moving along at such a clip. If you blank for more than two or three seconds, you'll probably miss something. Um, And I think I blanked at one point where I just wasn't 100% engaged with a sentence and it was like an, a very important sentence. <laughs> and, <laughs> and because the next moment was Oppenheimer saying, you know, uh, that would be treason. And I was like, crap, what, 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 what would be
1: treason? Oh, yeah. I, I know what, I know what you're talking about.
0: Right. And I was like, oh. cause there was, there's this all this uh, uh, buildup about the Chevalier incident, you know? Um, and then that was that moment. And I didn't really understand what the offense was. And so my second viewing, I was just tuned in. I, I wasn't anticipating it at all. I just happened to be a little more tuned in uh, in that moment. And he said, and I was like, oh, oh, that was that thing I missed. <laughs> and it was just suddenly became obvious. And the second time through, the names clicked a little bit better. Um, and I names get thrown out so quickly and frequently that you don't know what name is important and which one you should know like there's a comment from general groves early on about Tolson. And I was like, Oh, am I supposed to know who Tolson is? I don't think we ever meet Tolson. It's just a random guy he's talking about. Um, And I was like, which one was Tolson? And it just stuck in, I shouldn't even know the name Tolson. But here I am still like three days later. Um, And so watching it the second time definitely helped so much uh, as far as clarity goes. But there were just certain things too, that I thought the emotion and a lot of sequences carried a lot stronger in 35 um, just because the, the format's different. Like I think the emotion in the final shot is stronger in 35. Interesting. Just because you're cropped in closer to his eyes um, yeah. as opposed to right. The, the taller format, it's a more beautiful image, the hat, you know, and, and, you know, chest and you get much more. And even as you're pushing in, you're, it, it's still much more interesting visually to look at, but I think you're just dialed in a lot more through restricting all that visual information to just his facial features. Um, and you you kind of feel a little bit more in tuned with whatever he's, he's feeling. And so, and that's an important shot, of course, because it goes to everything you're saying about, we don't know how to judge Oppenheimer and in a lot of ways he doesn't know how to judge himself. And that's the big wrestling match that's going on in this film in you know, several ways. And I walked out of after that first viewing, not sure. How do I feel about this movie? I don't know. I I don't think liking or disliking it is the right way to to feel about it, Um, even though that's kind of how we boil everything down. But seeing it the second time and feeling a little more clear, even though that's back-to-back Friday and Saturday, three-hour viewings of the same movie, It's, it's a lot. But I walked out and I was like, Oh man, I I feel differently. And then last night, it just kept, it just stuck. It sticks with you. It just hangs in the air. Those trumpets, you know, just slowly building and releasing, or they just stick with you. And the more it resonated and just hung out over my head, the more I began to love it. Um, and I think that's probably where I end with this uh, film. Is I I love it. It's it's very strong. It has a lot to think about, assuming you're a thoughtful person. Um, I think that's the one thing I didn't like about it was on the one hand, it's absolutely from the perspective of Oppenheimer, like 90% of it. The stuff that isn't from his perspective, right, is kind of the wheelings and dealings of Strauss as he's trying to figure out if he's going to get this cabinet appointment. And I get that it's supposed to be from his perspective, his vantage, and we're getting inside his head. I understand that. I think there's walking into this movie. I'll say I was hoping for a stronger commentary or opinion or visceral um, implication about the bombs themselves going off in Japan. I was expecting to spend a little time over in Japan either briefly getting to know some people that get wiped out. And then you start to feel the emotional weight of what we actually did in world war II, or having a moment where fine. We saw what the bomb did in the middle of nowhere in the desert. That's great. Like that was powerful and we'll come Mm -hmm. back to that, but it's nothing because if you compare that to it, going off in a city with, you know, innocent you know, men, women, and children. That how do you even compare those two? You don't. You don't compare those two at all. Yeah. And the only way you can really see that is to see that. Um, instead, we saw the the bombs going off via the radio in the hallways of Los Alamos, uh, which is you know I understand the importance again of seeing how scientists are reacting to their work being used um, in destructive ways. But I just think if you want people to really walk out of here with an appreciation for that kind of force, you really need to let us see it. And I get, you know, he was showing it to us uh, psychologically through Oppenheimer stepping in the uh, decomposed corpse or not decomposed, but you know, irradiated, Mm -hmm. detonated, burned, you know, charred corpse, as well as like seeing skin fly off, you know, the, the front row uh, woman at the, the speech that he gives like that. That's all good. I'm just, I wanted a stronger judgment. If I'm completely uh, yeah, honest, I can,
1: I can see that for sure. That's that's really interesting. I never thought about that.
0: Yeah. Uh, but that aside, you know, and I and the reason I want that is because I think there's a lot of people who have no ambiguity over what we did in World War II, and if you have such strong moral clarity of of what we did. I don't think you need to be in, in charge of making those kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be super clear cut. It should be, um, not just, well, we did what we had to do. That's not enough. It's not enough to destroy whatever 50 to a hundred thousand lives,
1: you know, more. Uh, almost 200 when it was all said and done. That's,
0: that's, it's, yeah. yeah. You, you need more than, you know, a little guilt. You need to really feel the weight of what you're doing. Um, And of course we feel that through Oppenheimer a little bit. And I appreciated that early on, he was trying to think about it in very reasonable, rational scientific terms that if we just demonstrate it, demonstrate the power to them that we have, they'll back down. And, you know, he immediately gets overridden by Groves. Like, Nope, we They need to see this demonstrated all right in their cities. They need to feel the loss. And that's the only way. And then we'll do it again. The second one's to ensure them that we can keep doing this as long as it takes for them to back down. Like I, yeah. I, and then from there Oppenheimer suddenly, what do you do? You've already built the thing or you're on the cusp of it at that point in the film. And yeah, that's there's a lot. So that's, yeah. kinda... I
1: mean, because at that point, Hitler was dead. Yeah. You know, the whole point for, of him building it was so that the Nazis wouldn't have a bomb. Well, Hitler's dead. And that part of the war is, is pretty much over. So you had the, it was, that was interesting. Cause then you had these people, you know, meeting about like, okay, well that the war is over or the war with Germany is over. So we should stop this or whatever. But he persisted saying, saying basically saying somebody's going to develop this. It needs to be us. Mm -hmm. But why does it need to be us? Are we the policemen of the world or who's going to are Why is the world going to trust us with this over anybody else? And so when I saw that, I realized, oh, this is not just a story of this guy who had to build this thing so that, you know, we could win the war. It's, 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 he was, he was on a mission to get this done. And and so our war with Japan, like the 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 issue with Japan, like that was not something that was discussed at all at the beginning of the film. Japan had nothing to do with anything. It was all Germany and Nazis and mm-hmm. and everything. And then when that was over, it's like, oh, why did we continue going? Oh, he pushed it forward. Okay, I mean everybody did, you know, like the yeah. government did, but <clears throat> he supported that, pushing it forward and continuing the the research, continuing. The development, and there were several times where he could have stopped, and he just didn't. You know, so I just, I was like, I, at the end of it, I thought, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? I, I don't know, and that's why they end with that shot of him just sitting there thinking, am I a good guy or a bad guy? Like <laughs> I don't, I don't know, you know. But there's several points in the film where, where you know, um, Kitty would would you know, she was so so strong. She was just telling him fight, fight, fight for your fight for yourself, whatever. And he just couldn't, because I think that he just hated himself in ways where it would feel bad if he fought for himself. But at the same time, he had he knew he had to live with himself. So it was just this massive war. It was such told in such a good way. But that's a great point about not seeing over in Japan, not being there, not getting that feeling of when it even if it was just like a A few seconds or just a minute, you know, it would have been very impactful.
0: It wouldn't take much, you know, just to have someone,
1: you know, a
0: mom and a dad at a grocery market buying something and then nothing. Right. Well, look, I'll run through some notes and then jump in. I feel like this is going to be more conversational um, than anything else. But as far as cinematography goes, I love the use of color versus black and white because my first time through, I was like, oh, this is clearly, you know, the future is in black and white and the, the past is in color. And that's not so simple. I think Oppenheimer is in full color and Strauss is in black and white, colorless, stark, just the same as his McCarthyist views, right? Um, it's just this world where everything is so clear cut and lacks any kind of grades of in between. And it's also painting this picture of fission versus fusion because that's how he labels it at the start of the film. Fission is color fusion is black and white. And that's also kind of the start of like TV and broadcasting. And it carries us into the cold war. And I think those two things are very interesting. My perspective of that is fission, you know, technically speaking, let's define them both. Fission is the splitting of a nucleus into two. uh, And fusion is combining two nuclei. And of course, fusion, far more powerful, right? Um, And they, they touch on that in the film. Now, if you're gonna look at it metaphorically, I would say fission is Germany versus America, right? You have two would-be, you know, uh, atomic superpowers fighting for supremacy, and then of course Germany does not succeed, America does. They become the one superpower, right? That's that's our fission, and then fusion is America being the atomic superpower uh, now being combined with Russia. That's our fusion. And of course, combining Russia uh, and America, you know, atomic weaponry uh, becomes far more dangerous, far more potent um, than one of those alone. Yeah, and uh, we'll kind of come back to that uh, later. Cinematography wise, I watching it in, in IMAX, I was like, you know, there's a lot of considerations you should be making. I'm not saying they did, but if I'm thinking about the way I, I'm, I'm going to shoot an IMAX film, Uh, One of the first things I'm thinking about is motion sickness, like putting something on screen like that. You have to be very delicate with how you handle handheld, even your pacing, your camera moves, uh, because you can get your audience motion sick just from sitting in front of that. And so I don't know that how much they had to think about that because. Nolan's style isn't very handheld anyway, but I did notice handheld shots were few and far between. There's like maybe two or three, it felt like, where they were really going for it on handheld. Otherwise, it's cranes, it's dollies, uh, it's on sticks. You know, we're just not going to whip this thing around, uh, which is important too because, you know, this is a a story where we're in and out of scenes very, very quickly. And so you want to make sure people get oriented very, very fast and seamlessly so that they're engaged with the story and not just trying to figure out when and where the hell are we, which is another nice thing. Uh, there's no timestamps in this film. Uh, they never tell you when you are, you have to contextually piece it together for yourself and you start at the at the end. Right. That conversation with Einstein and Oppenheimer is after the, the building of the bomb and as he's about to start a whole new department. And you have to realize and start to piece together based on what's happening within the world, because it's not really until they announce Germany's invaded Poland that you're like, oh, I know exactly when we are now. And I know what to anticipate. Crap. Here we go. Uh, then it becomes very, very clear and obvious. Other things for for IMAX, of course, is the way you frame it for cropping later on. You're not just shooting for IMAX, right? This is going to live in multiple formats all the way down to some asshole's cell phone. Uh, don't watch this on your cell phone. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you're aware of your cropping. Um, and so you want to get a good shot for IMAX as well as for later consideration in 35 I wouldn't be surprised if sometimes he was shooting both like, oh, okay, we're going to shoot this, you know, in IMAX, Uh eh, maybe let's, you know, get a different shot strictly for 35 or something that wouldn't surprise me too much. But the, the other thing with, with IMAX is, and with this film in particular, a lot of soft focus, which, you know, I actually liked, I, for one, as a filmmaker um, who is more interested in, emotional quality of a take as opposed to necessarily the technical quality. I felt like Nolan was constantly going towards performance in this film, uh, which hasn't always been the case. Um, I think there's been a lot of films where he was more interested in getting technical, you know, perfection. Uh, In this film, it felt like he was much more interested in getting uh, the the performance and the emotional qualities across. And if that meant, you know, we got to go with a, a shot that's a little softer, that's fine. You know what? We're going to tell the story better because this is an emotional story at its heart, as much as it's looking like a technical film about science. It's really like Todd has been saying, like it's Oppenheimer's wrestling match that he's going, has going on in his head. Um, And the best way to tell that is by communicating emotions. And that's how I think a lot of the soft focus is used. Um, It's very intimate. It's alive as you feel us searching for clarity, for focus, right? It's all kind of playing hand in hand with the cinematography, um, which is beautiful. Of course, the other thing is shooting on IMAX in this large, 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 larger-than-life format probably harder to pull focus uh, because the depth of field is so much shallower when you start to open up the lens. That's just the nature of the larger the format, the, the narrower the depth of field gets as you get you know wider um, apertures. Yeah. So a lot going on with cinematography. Uh, story and writing wise, uh, very fast start. I thought that was really important, right? That The cutting is very quick visual effects popping within the first, you know, two, three minutes, you're just in it a lot happening. Uh, and I think that's important because you need to create a lot of momentum and visual interest in order to grab everyone's attention quickly. If They're going to be here for three hours. You want to make sure you don't wait two hours to get their attention. Um, there are some films that work really well that way. Uh, and that's fine. Not this film, this film, you need to be completely engaged or else you're going to check out. If you if you skip that first five minutes, you're done. This is a slog. But if he can get you in the first 30 seconds, now he's got you and you can understand and follow the story much easier. Yeah, it's just a difference between kind of the slow burn, right? Works for some things, but it's better for this, you know, to pull everyone in immediately. Uh, a slow burn will be uh, a fast death <laughs> in this kind of uh, movie exposition i don't have much i there's just one little simple thing that i was like that's smart i i don't know if they did this at los alamos or not but it's a good thing to do for the film which is the use of the fishbowls right and marbles great exposition it's very simple it's a quick visual reference for how close we are to seeing the bomb and so every time we we cut to that stuff we're like okay we got time we can take a breath <laughs> it's not it's not time yet but slowly those things start filling up and you're realizing, oh man, they're, they're getting there. Uh, and then of course, once those last few marbles hit, you're like, okay, when? And then like the tension starts to build and you start to just anticipate when is it happening? When? And then they start building the, the scaffolding right for the bomb. Uh, and you're just like, oh God. <laughs> and everything around that uh, is just pins and needles. Because we know the outcome. We don't know the process And so there's so much tension that you can utilize in that. And so the buildup of the actual Trinity test is really cool because it's just laden with suspense, right? It's almost two hours, 10 minutes ish before we finally see the bomb go off. And it's just this heart pounding setup uh, because the uncertainty has been made so clear, articulated in so many scenes. Of course, we, the audience know the world doesn't end. What we don't know is if anyone actually gets hurt in the process, we've started to respect and love scientists, these scientists, but as a general rule of thumb, we all kind of like scientists. Like even the, the weirdest of us don't really have anything against a scientist per se. You know, it just might be some particular debate or another health food. We got it all wrong, whatever. Like you, you have your, your, your qualms, but as a whole, we have a great deal of respect in America for science and the people who carry it out. And so the idea that these guys are about to get, you know, melted is like, I don't want that. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and so we start to see, you know, the sunblock get applied. Eyeglasses. Instructions to only look through the welder's glass. And then, you know, at the last second, the scientist runs out to see it for himself. We have no idea if someone's going to get blinded. if They're going to get burned. They're going to get cancer or even just flat out melted. <laughs> like we don't, we don't know what's about to happen. And every little risk that someone is taking, we're like, what's going to happen to them? This guy's not putting on anything. He's just looking through the the windshield. And that little comment from um, uh, teller is like, uh-huh. you know, what's going to stop the glass? And you're like, Oh yeah. God, <laughs> I don't know what's about to happen. And so we just feel the danger, even as we know the general outcome. Uh, there's just so much anxiety that's being built up through the human element just because we don't know if someone's good. anyone. Everyone's in danger. Uh, yeah, it's just a beautiful execution because the only thing we really know from atomic testing is that little house getting shredded. <laughs> like <laughs> everything else is just mushroom clouds in the distance. Yeah. And so... The final scene. Uh, let's let's talk about that. That whole conversation with Einstein, um, because there's this really great setup where they're doing that. I don't know what to call it. A uh, little mock trial, the little hidden uh, agenda room um, with Rob and whatever uh, Roger Rob. They they have that line, that question. I it was either there at the, or at the trial. I forget which one. Where they they ask him. When did you first have doubts about the use of the H bomb? And his response is something along the lines of when it became clear we tend to use any weapon we built. That's saying a lot. And I think that's critical to understanding what's going on in his head at the very end because we have that little exchange between Einstein and Oppenheimer, right? And he as Einstein's turning to walk away, he he throws out the 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 memory, right? Do you recall when I came to you with those calculations that said we could start a chain reaction that could end the entire world? Einstein's like, yeah. He's like, I'm afraid we did. And then we hold, right? Oppenheimer's eyes are closed and we're watching um, missiles launching armed with atomic weapons, explosions, the world chain reacting into fiery hell. This is all a callback to the start of the film. The things that Oppenheimer was imagining as a young student That came to pass, right? Visions of physics and how the world truly operates underneath it all. And now with his eyes closed, he's wrestling with his imagination once more, right? The same imagination that he and other scientists, as they said in the film, can see in their head. We can imagine. We don't need it demonstrated to understand the grave reality, right? But now he's got these fears that that same imagination is not enough to prevent world powers from using the weapons that we've built for them. Cause he knows military governments, they just want to use the things that get built. That's just how they operate. Why, why use the hammer if you're not going to use it? Um, I feel like we've seen that mentality time and time again, uh, publicly spoken, um, by government officials, whether it's military or, you know, congressional, that's just their mentality. Like we build things, therefore we need to use them to demonstrate our great power or whatever like and so he's closing his eyes imagining this this nightmare scenario because throughout the film we've seen chain reactions of course we've seen the technical ones right of of the bombs and blah 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 but there's so many other chain reactions we actually watched that you don't really consider to be chain reactions whenever he started his uh, his his program when he came back to America to teach quantum physics he had a pupil that pupil quickly and one edit grew to multiple and then many right it just slowly chain reacted into a lot of students and a lot of interest right one scientist as they began the manhattan project oppie he grew into many that was a chain reaction it was just one small thing that grew into a bunch and then you have the the stomping right in the room after the uh bombs in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki that stomping feels like millions of little reactions. That's the intention there, of course. Uh, And so his one little test bomb that he started grew into a chain reaction that created thousands between America and Russia. And now he's just imagining how does this play out? You know, because we're living in a fusion world now. Um, And the, and the result, the chain reaction of that, if it begins, is done it's over um yeah and so that's that's ultimately what he's thinking about that's what the film is trying to build into your head um that if you start this there will be no end or at least not one that you get to see um yeah and so that's the i think the story that that's being told let's talk about some of the music and the casting uh you said it perfectly well uh and so i'll just double down Music carries us through the entire film, right? It's sweeping us through montages and various sequences. It gives us a sense of breathless pace to keep us engaged and feeling every moment is significant, right? Everything that's happening. And it's important because, like you said, if you strip this thing away, that's a rough one to get through. But with it, it's carrying us. And it it, it makes it feel a lot lighter than it actually is. And it's it's just important to... Keep the audience tuned in and, and engaged, um, but it also is doing something else because because it's it present all the time. Therefore, stripping the music actually adds emphasis. Right? It's normally the opposite. Adding music is emphasis. Right now, stripping it is emphasis in this film. Um, right? Gene Tatlock, uh, that whole little affair. Whenever he's having to talk about her in that backroom interrogation, we should call it, Uh, they strip it out. Suddenly the music cuts out and it's just a conversation of them naked in a hotel room, opposite sides of the room. And it's perfect because we need to feel the weight of their exchange of their relationship because it's a very important moment as that moment is implied in countless future moments. That conversation is the impetus for her death what we don't know is if it's suicide or murder either way it haunts oppenheimer cuz he's the catalyst similar the they strip all the music away during the uh, the detonation of the trinity bomb itself in fact all we hear is just breathing it's the human element that's all that's left um as we're watching you know the the first strike of just incredible power we're just hearing breathing and it's just Unbelievable. Like, what a brilliant use of audio. Um, And of course, afterwards, you know, after the the bombings in Japan, we hear Oppenheimer's speech. And then he just cuts it. Cuts all audio. Almost all audio, I should say. Like, we begin to feel his internal conflict, even as it contradicts the things that he's saying. Right? He's trying to put a public face on his hopes, effectively. Like, And he's being a little audacious right uh japan's not gonna remember it he's he's playing into the 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 fever dream of war that happens right uh anyone who lived through nine eleven remembers just how bombastic every politician became and just how you know fervent everyone was bloodlust you know it was just It was chaos. It was, it's, it's pretty, you know, sad to think about it in hindsight, even if understandable, you're just seeing, you know, how upset everyone is and how grateful, you know, to have the upper hand, you know, if, if you're living after those bombs being dropped uh, and Oppenheimer is, I think also trying to talk himself into it, he's trying to talk himself into, this was the good thing. This is what we were trying to do. Cause if you intended to do this, maybe it's a little less to feel guilty about. As opposed to this is not the, the the byproduct of what I was trying to do in the same way that Nobel, you know, had his dynamite used in ways that he didn't want. You know, Nobel built dynamite for good reasons, <laughs> to to build things, you know, not to destroy lives. Uh, and I love that he was invoked at the beginning of the film. You know, uh, I, I plan to win a, a Nobel Prize. Nobel invented dynamite. Um, it's like, yeah, well, here we are. And so that's a really great contrast, uh, and and thing to note about Oppenheimer and no and Nobel, Alfred Nobel. Um, yeah. And so the way they're just using audio throughout this film, <laughs> he leaves no stone unturned, man. He's using everything in his in his uh creative power to to bring this story to life. And in that same vein, casting like another thing he just did not sleep on. Casting is so important, right? I saw Casey Affleck come on and I was like, oh, Pash. Okay, Pash is really important. This is a very important guy. Uh, and it was funny because walking out of the the, the theater, um, I watched it with Scott at the IMAX and he was like, man, I knew Rami Malek was going to be important, man. I saw him and I was like, oh, they got hit. that's weird. He's just kind of a background character. And I was like, yeah, they're not going to cast him as an extra, right? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah. I was like, man, I, I knew this guy. No, they cast him for a reason. Just don't forget him. And then, of course, he comes in at the end as the, the dagger to Strauss's hopes, right? Um, he's like, nope, this was all on Strauss. This is a, a vindictive thing that he had going on. And casting is really important because those are, you know, small roles on the page, but really big roles in the story, and therefore, you need to cast big names uh, because just seeing those actors in quick supporting roles tells us to remember them. It helps when they pop up or a reference later to, to recall them in our mind. And it's crucial in such a complex drama to be able to instantly parse names and faces to help understand the stakes and payoffs. Uh, but it's also important to not cast someone too big for a supporting role. Right now, you want good actors as the synodade. Right, the guy that's uh next to Robert Downey the entire film, you don't want to cast Casey Affleck in that role because now you're almost putting too much important on that uh, on that role, whereas if you cast all then Aaron like he's a really good actor, but not so good that he's a household name, therefore distracting from the purpose of his role um because if you cast someone too big for that role, suddenly you're just waiting when's your moment? you're gonna have a moment and I'm waiting for what it is. Uh, and so casting is really delicate. It's a balance. And I think Nolan did a great job as well as whoever the casting director to, to find great supporting actors that are just really good actors. But I also loved for me, there's certain actors that I saw coming in that I was like, oh, I'm so glad to see them in a in a good drama uh, like Josh Peck. Uh, I think he's a really good dramatic actor. I don't like him in comedy. I think he just does not work for me in comedy, but my God, does he work for me in dramas? Uh similar to like Adam Sandler, right? You know, like you see him in a drama, you're like, man, that's gonna be good. You see him in mm-hmm. comedy and you're like, ah, I don't know if I want to watch that. <laughs> Great point. <laughs> uh same thing with Olivia Thoroughby. I think she's another one of these actors that have just been kind of underutilized uh, throughout her career. Um, and I'm not choosing those two names out of a bucket uh i they're both in the wackness which is one of my favorite little indie films that no one's watched um i just love that movie and seeing them together on screen even if not necessarily uh doing lines together uh was really fun for me um but this movie is just laced with incredible talent uh that just aren't household names yet um i think benny safty is is probably on his way this is the guy that plays uh edward teller um who the handshake guy he's the he's the one that you know emily blunt's uh kitty doesn't want to to shake hands with and he's got such a strong look and it's crazy because he's also a writer director him and his brother did uncut gems Ooh, yeah
1: speaking of adam sandler
0: right <laughs> and it's just like crazy for me to see him getting to be in a nolan film that would be like I don't know, Nolan getting to be in a Nolan film. (laughs) It's like, like, wow, this guy is so wildly talented, but he has such a strong, strong look. um, And I can see why you would want to use him. He's a good actor for sure, but his look just like pierces you Um, and seeing him on screen, like does a lot. It brings a lot of life to a character that you need to bring a lot of life to, but also maybe not someone you want to just have overpowering, overshadowing, you know, the other characters, actors on screen by sheer name uh, alone. Yeah. And so yeah, they did a great job. Gary Oldman stepping in as Truman is really wonderful um and just a strong, memorable moment, right? Cuz he says it straight. He's like, there's no blood on your hands. You're not going to be remembered for that. I'm going to be remembered for dropping those bombs cuz I made that decision. And he's absolutely right. Any any blood you want to put on this, put on Truman. (laughs) That's, that's a okay. Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's kind of the, the things that I noticed. I think, you know, there's probably a thousand other things uh, to, to point out, but what do you, what do you make of all that, man? Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. um, uh, So speaking of the, the music, so the guy who scored this film, he scored Tenet too, which is really interesting like, you know, cause I just think Nolan has had such success with, uh, with, um, uh, what's his name? Hans Zimmer. Uh, yeah. Thank you. That God guy, that dude with that guy with Hans Zimmer <laughs> that, um, it's just interesting that he's you know going back with somebody that he, he used in a film that was less received, uh, I guess lower received, but oh my God, I mean, that just, that just shows you. Sometimes you need to make decisions when you're making stuff based on how you feel about that thing and how you feel some one specific person is going to get it or do it right or or it'll be they're going to be easier to work with or you know that you can go to them and ask them for something else even though they've given you something already like there could be a multitude of reasons why he didn't work with Zimmer maybe Zimmer was still working with Dune on Dune or whatever but mm. but this guy I mean, I think he took a long time to write the music, but he recorded the entire score in five days. The whole thing is there's like an, there's like two and a half hours worth of music and he recorded it all in five days and there's no drums in it. There might be percussive elements hmm. that happen throughout the film and like clanks and bangs and stuff, but there's no, there's no drums in the whole thing. It's like very horn based and string based, right? So Nolan had to- told him that he wanted a lot of strings. And so we open with like strings and like in that scene you were talking about where he's, he has one pupil, Oppenheimer has one pupil and it turns to more and turns to like a whole class. Uh, I read something, um, where he, he said, I wanted, I wanted to feel like it was multiplying like this, this project was multiplying or his interest was multiplying. So I had, I said, it's starting with one violin. And then when we see, you know, four people. Now there's four violins and we see a whole class. Now there's a whole sim an orchestra going on, you know? So he would do things like that. And then there were, um, I know that, that, um, in that same article that I read and I can, I send you a link in, in the show notes. It was in variety, but he talks about how Nolan called him into an IMAX theater to watch what he was putting together, some of the visuals and, he like realized, Oh my gosh, this is, I, I know what I have to do now. He would go back and do it. And then later on, while they're editing the film, Nolan would go to him and say, uh, Goranson is his last name. I think Goranson go to him and say, I need an, a, another 20 minutes of music. And then he would write a whole nother 20 minute thing of of music. And then I, I and then you would go to him later and say, okay, I need another 15 minute thing of music. And then he would write that. And, just the, the back and forth, the ability to go back and forth with somebody who's, who like knows your story and wants to tell it and like, and is okay with, you know, not having it be like, here it is. And then I'm gone, you know, is probably a, a, a great way to work as a creator, I would imagine. But the, the score is just unbelievable. And it, it's not one of those scores where you could sit back and hum it, you know, like a, like a, um, a Hans Zimmer, score or something uh or where you hear it you know that's oppenheimer it's it's so embedded in the visual of the film that it's hard to separate the two and i i i don't think that anything else would have been right you know i mean i say that of course there's probably something else that could have been right who knows but it just felt so ingrained in it and and correct it was just just absolutely beautiful yeah damn
0: that's fascinating. I mean, that's genius. Uh, the, the idea of starting small and then building up to a full orchestra uh, yeah. just to reinforce, not just visually, but thematically, um, what's going on within the film. Uh, God, I mean, look, maybe that stuff doesn't make a hill of beans. But I think just having an approach that speaks to those things can make an impact. Uh, Whether or not it did in this case or in every case, uh, I think just having that kind of mentality that says, what is this film about? What is this scene about? How can I layer that in my thinking about whatever I'm doing, whether that's set design, wardrobe, music, cinematography, uh, the lighting, right? What if they went from one light to multiple lights? I don't know, but thinking about those things is just an avenue to a creative process that gets you to a result sometimes whenever you're looking at a blank page as a writer it's hard to know what's the right first word and having an outline playing some word association for me lately i've just been writing short films to help me get into a process punch the keys and you know just to feel like this is going somewhere i can get some momentum and now here we are like just having a starting point that points you in a direction can be super super useful. Now in this case, I think it did. I think it did pay off. But uh, that's again, that's just an opinion. Um, it's not supposed to be objective. Uh, I I just as a matter of creative process, really value and and love that approach. Uh, yeah, very cool, amazing, nice. I last thoughts, man. I don't know. I could. I got a lot still in the tank, I guess. But
1: no, I mean that. I think you said it all like had some great points, um, about little things that could have been maybe a little bit more clear, but like, like how great 99% of it was and just, I don't have anything to add. I I think I said everything I wanted to say. It's, it's, it's a masterpiece in my mind. I think it's just absolutely amazing. I, I want to watch it again, three hours long, who cares? Just go watch it and enjoy it for the story that it is. And yeah, immerse yourself.
0: And I want to come back to that because the first thing you said was about the three hour runtime and I completely agree. Like, yes, uh, this could have been too long, but of course the proof of the pudding is in the eating, right? And so you watch the film and you're like, I get it. I get why this needed to be three hours long. There are so, I was on the edge walking in. I was like, is this three hours because it needs to be three hours or is it, that long just because he got lazy in editing. And there are so many films that I think are running into three hours now that they're just being lazy in editing, whether that's editing the scripts or editing the footage um, and tightening it down. I think there's this kind of buffet approach of more is better. And it's like, no, a better story is better. And if the story demands to be you know three hours, then great, do that. But if it's not, if it's not helping tell your story, then you need to trim it back. There's so many films that I've watched over the last two or three years. And as much as I appreciate filmmakers willing to and distributors willing to go into this longer runtime, it just feels lazy. It, a lot of the, these longer stories are just being very, very lazy in their approach. Um, and they're just they don't know how to tell a tighter story. And it's one of those old adages of I forget who said it, but. I would have wrote you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Mm. Right. It takes longer to write something concise than it does to just say a bunch of things all at once and and go back and edit it or to sit and think about what it is you really want to say. And just write that that's all very time consuming. Just spitting for, you know, three hours doesn't take very much. You can let the scene run long. You can, you don't have to think about what's important. What's not important. You just throw it all in there. And there's a lot of director's cuts that aren't very good, but that's not every director's cut. Some director's cut. I'm like the studio did you a disservice for me. Kingdom of heaven, director's cut far superior to the, the theatrical cut. Um, they're just two different stories. And it's crazy because it's whatever, 20, 30 minutes extra, uh, but it changes the entire movie. And you're like, why are y'all doing this? Um, tell the right story. It doesn't matter. The runtime just tell the right story. And I, I, if I were to edit, I couldn't edit this movie. I would have to rewrite this movie uh, in order to make it shorter uh, because everything is very puzzle pieced in and um, and it's telling a very specific story. And the only way to get around that is just to rethink the structure of the film. Um, And I don't think you, you really want to do that too much on this just because you could turn this into a Senate hearing, or uh, you could turn this into a movie about, whatever social network, right? You could feel almost the, the skeleton of social network kind of looking in over Nolan's shoulder. Like, what are you doing in there? Nolan?" <laughs> um, because it feels very intercutty, right? With, uh, these important things that call back to the things that they're referencing and that's all interplaying perfectly. Uh, and if you don't do it in this way, then you get into a very tedious thing because this way you get to just go to the important parts and you get to fast forward through the past You get to fast forward through the the hearings. And if you don't do it this way, then you're having to set up the hearing. You're having to set up the stakes within the hearing itself uh, instead of using the hearings to set up the stakes of the scenes you're going to go and revisit. Like that's Mm -hmm. all interlinked perfectly and well thought out in, in the structure. And if you wanted to do that other version, You just really need to do a mini series, like a limited HBO series kind of thing. And then that's a different result. And I'm sure that's still really compelling, um, but not going to fit into the format and kind of the push and the emotional weight that you feel in one sitting, sitting through this thing. Yeah. That's my final word. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) For now. For now. Um, For now. Yeah. What are you going to recommend, man?
1: So I can't believe we haven't covered this or recommended it or whatever but uh, you know we're we're going in here and I'm like what the hell do you recommend after Oppenheimer i mean i the you manhattan know, project look, no I, I was sitting here looking like i just you know i get the whole uh, barbenheimer you know thing that's happening because it's just you need a palate <laughs> yeah. cleanse you know um but i went and, and reviewed everything we haven't covered it it hasn't been Thrown out here in in uh, recommendations, but I'm going to recommend Chernobyl on HBO. Did we I know, not? I know. Do a search. Do a search on our Holy sheet. Holy
0: crap.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I win this week. <laughs> you do win this week. Um, <laughs> uh, it, I mean, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before. Uh, yeah. We brought it up, and it's just mind-blowing and it's very much in the vein of Oppenheimer you know it's historic it's the difference is it's not just about one person and which I think is why it gets away with with being more of a series Mm. than you know maybe a film which you know Oppenheimer is 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 a film because it's about one guy right I mean like you mentioned it maybe being a limited could have maybe been limited series and it it could have it just I think you would agree wouldn't have the weight of of being a film yeah. Um, it needed to be a three-hour film. So anyway, Chernobyl is absolutely fantastic. It's on HBO. It's on Max. Go stream it. Uh, it's it will blow your blow your mind.
0: Yeah. Oh my god. And we should cue that up for we should uh, a session. Yeah. We should. Um, I'm going to recommend Trumbo. So one thing we didn't really touch on in this film, which is a major part of the film, is the Red Scare. I mean, there's this whole element yeah. in here about McCarthyism. Uh, punishing, you know, Oppenheimer. And it's so funny, man. I think governments at large do this thing where once they get what they want out of you, you are either now still part of the team or they're going to destroy you. There's not a lot of middle ground. It's not like, oh, like there's that moment when Groves lets that guy walk out and Oppenheimer's like, you're just going to let him go. He's like, he hates me. He doesn't hate America. I'm uh, just <clears throat> like, That's a really healthy perspective, General Groves. I don't know that you really have that point of view, though. Uh, I hope so. But that's not the way these things generally go down. It's we're going to destroy the people that speak against us now. And Oppenheimer, you know, I'm guessing I forgot to kind of look into this, but it sounds like he started, you know, championing restraint and the idea that maybe uh, all these nuclear weapons weren't a good idea, um, and things of that nature, right? And McCarthyism persecution is a great way to go about uh, restraining views that don't help you uh, and don't push your agenda, you know, further. And the the idea with America is not just being a nation of laws, but a nation of you know free speech is a great fantasy that we've been pushing and we really believe now. And I think this is storytelling 101. This is what makes uh, uh, storytelling so powerful is we grew up on these ideas that free speech is everything, you know, we have a right to the, these things and that hasn't always been the case. Like even in, in Oppenheimer's time and Trumbo's time. So I'm recommending Trumbo because it's about a screenwriter who got blacklisted. Because uh, of his views. And, you know, he was a brilliant screenwriter. And because I forget all the details of it, but he got, you know, listed as a a communist and maybe he was to me, it doesn't really matter. But there was just so much fear and there was so much uh, uh, resentment towards Russia that anybody associated with those views were no longer tolerable. You know, you were a persona non grata. Uh, you were no longer a human being. You were not a true American, blah, blah, blah. And just forgetting the whole idea of free speech is what we do here. <laughs> you know, we, it's all about tolerance uh, and my fear. And I think Trumbo is such a good film to watch now just to remind people that not everyone understands the way tolerance should be carried out. Sometimes even least of all the creative community. Because it wasn't just the government doing that to them, to Mm -hmm. to Trumbo. It was artists. Artists were participating in this. And so right now, as you look at society as a whole, don't forget, just because you think you're on the right side doesn't mean you should be intolerant of people who think differently than you. Um, And if you're not capable of sitting down and having lunch or dinner with someone with radically different views from yourself, you might be doing it wrong. Um, Yeah. So Trumbo... Actually a really good film. It looks very dry, but it's actually incredible. It's Brian Cranston. Do you need another reason? It's Brian Cranston. <laughs> <you> uh, go. <laughs> uh, yeah, go watch it. I, I I loved it. And I think it uh, is a really n- nice avenue when you're thinking about all those things of uh, what Oppenheimer was going through. Yeah. Stay tuned for next week. Um, I forecast a really fun mission where we go into Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. Yeah, we already recorded that. So... Yeah. Uh, anything you hear this week in light of next week or vice versa, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> My linear thinking is, is destroyed after Oppenheimer. So.
1: Yeah, we're having a tenant moment.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> We are.
1: Uh, If you're enjoying the show, don't forget,
0: subscribe, review, uh, leave us notes, something you want us to talk about, things you find interesting. Uh, We'd like to hear about those things. Shout out to Uva for dropping some notes on the last few episodes, uh, Apollo 13, and of course, uh, Run Lola Run. Thanks, man, for for contributing to the conversation. And if you want to comment on this episode in particular, uh, feel free to do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash Oppenheimer.
1: And our quote of the day today, this is another thing I loved about the film. We see all these like really famous scientists and I'm like, oh my gosh, Niels Bohr. Yeah, this is amazing. (laughs) Uh, uh, It it was just so fun. Anyway, uh, so our quote of the day is from Niels Bohr. The opposite of a correct statement is a false statement, but the opposite of a profound truth may well be another profound truth. That's. That is absolutely incredible (laughs) did he really say that That right (laughs) i mean for 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 like someone so analytical to be so proficient with words so poetic Mm. is like is unbelievable right that is that's poetry right there that's not just science you know that is that's political that's humanitarian that is that's uh it's just human. That's uh, unbelievable. It is. I mean, I guess it does make sense when you study the universe and its inner workings, right? And you 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 do experiments and you come to decisions, or you come to to um, have a, hypotheses about the way the universe works. You find some work and some don't, and I think that it, throughout your life or throughout like history, very few people ask a question and then experiment to find an answer and are honest with the result of their experiment, right? I mean, that is in itself is a definition of a scientist, right? And so if I'm sitting here and I'm saying, I think this, I just go on with my life thinking that, right? But a scientist is going to go and and say, I think this, and I'm going to try to make this happen, or I'm going to try to prove it. And then you find Something else, or you find an opposite truth, right? Which also in itself is a profound truth. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's wow. It's very scientific, but it's also very human. It's amazing.
0: Exactly. It's so human, and I think that kind of gets to what Oppenheimer was dealing with. On the one hand, you have a country hell bent on evil purposes, trying to develop a weapon that could end everyone. And so he feels compelled to jump into that race. Like we need to be that first so that we can prevent them. Um, And then of course, the other side of that is this is a thing that could end us. And just because we're the right ones to build it right now, doesn't mean we're the right ones to hold it forever. Um, And there's a lot to be weighed and considered and it's not an easy answer. I've never pretended to know the exact answer. I've, I've always been glad I'm not Harry Truman. Because I don't know the right solution. My instinct is a demonstration's better than immediately killing 200,000 people. But at the same time, that wasn't on my shoulders. And so uh, I respect that it's not an easy thing to weigh and to do. Uh, I'm certainly glad no one's used one since. Um, And maybe in that way, Oppenheimer's wish uh, did come true. uh, Because we did get to see it used. No one has wanted to do it since. Like as bad as things got between us and Russia as us, you know, between us and China, like no one said it's time. It's time to drop one of these. Nah, you know, maybe mutually assured destruction is a a pretty good deterrence after all, hopefully. And hopefully it continues to be. Um, of course a a big fear is the longer we go since the last time it gets, it, it got used. The, the more tempting it becomes, the more you forget the devastating power of it. Uh, but hopefully that's, the best case scenario for the loss of all that life is, you know, the prevention of even more life in the future. I don't know. I don't that's know, man.
1: A really good. Yeah. That's a really good point there. Cause I was trying to think like, I'm. I mean, I remember, you know, learning about the cold war, obviously that was, you know, like I was very young. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but like, what was the, what was the reason why it, they weren't used again? You know, was it because of that? Was it because the demonstration was so vast and destructive that it, it not only caused, you know, convinced Japan to to surrender or just you know, whatever, it not only did it end World War Two, but it ended the idea of ever using these again. Was it that big of a demonstration? And in that case, to your point, was it necessary? You know, I—I I mean, that's a—that's a heavy question. My yeah. God. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Wow. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> As a, I mean, to, yeah. To your point, I'm glad I wasn't Harry Truman. Yeah. My God.
0: I can't wait to see what Nolan does next. I—I I, I appreciate how thoughtful he is, and if this uh, is any indication of the trajectory that he's on, sign me up.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Great quote, man. Wow, this is. That's just unbelievable. Ooh, gosh! Yeah. I mean, I could literally keep talking for another hour about this, <laughs> yeah. but I think we got to call it at an hour and a half. Man, thank you so much for your insight, West. That was absolutely awesome. Same uh, I hope that uh, every- like,
0: you had a lot of really great stuff, not just in the film overall, but pointing out some of the stuff happening with the music fucking cool man
1: yeah man well i hope that you guys enjoyed this and that you didn't listen before you watched we warned you at the very (laughs) beginning uh but um but please like wes said subscribe review us give us uh any kind of feedback that you might have we'd love to hear your comments um and share us with a friend it all helps the podcast you know we do this because we love it but also we want to get out to people and we want to we want to see what everybody thinks and we want to dissect these things so that we can learn from it um, and make something ourselves uh, that has a little bit maybe of Oppenheimer in it or a little bit of of uh, Mission Impossible in it or a little bit of Cyrano in it you know all of these things they all culminate into, into these things that we make and so that's why we do what we do but make sure to follow us subscribe all that good stuff until next week I'm Todd I'm Wes go watch some movies